Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tell Me The Score. My guest today is best known as a lyricist and a musician, a writer of musicals, Cats, Phantom, Starlight Express. Richard Stilgo is one of the most gifted human beings you'll ever meet, and he's also one of the kindest. When I arrived at his house in Surrey, we sat straight down at the piano. I began by asking him about his early life and what drew him to music. Thank yeah. you very much for having me, Richard. Um, Lovely to have you here. I thought it would be really good for people to hear how your musical life started. So you grew up in Liverpool. I yeah, I was born down south. And when we, we went to Liverpool when I was three because my dad got a job in Liverpool. He's the only person who's ever gone to Liverpool and got work. As everybody else leaves. Um, and, yeah, and because we'd moved miles away from the family, I didn't see, didn't see my grannies very often. But my mum's mum, who was one of five daughters of a vicar, so they all had to have jobs in the parish because otherwise it didn't work. And she was the organist. And she was just one of those people who was musical all the way through her body. And quite early on, when she came to see us, she would sit down and play the piano. And I thought, that's neat. Um, and I sang her a song and she then played it. And I said, how'd you do that? And she said, well, listen. And she sort of took me through. I, can't, I think it was... If I Had a Needle and Thread, sung by Eve Boswell. So we're talking, what, 1952 or three here. And she said, well, listen to that note. Now listen to the next note. It's higher, isn't it? So it's further up the piano. And it's quite a lot higher, so it's quite a long way up the piano. You know, and if you think of that, it's, it's simplest. If you think of... You know, then... If you listen and you've got an ear, there's that... Then there's that. And somebody's... Now, those are the same note, aren't they? But one's higher up. And if you start thinking about it in those sort of gradations, after a bit, you can develop a musical ear. And she had the most wonderful ear. I mean, she was a good reader as well. But... And I I just sort of... It, it was dangerous, because I learned a lot from her and started playing by ear, which is fatal. Because if you find that fairly easy... Technically, you become a really rubbish musician. Uh, and my sight reading is still terrible, and, and I had to sort of add that on later. It's easier, I think, if you start with all these black insects on a piece of paper and work it out from there. But it hasn't it served you quite well, though? Do you not think that's a massive advantage in some ways? It's, that's an argument you can have forever. You know, if Paul McCartney and John Lennon had known the musical rules they probably wouldn't have written any of the stuff they wrote because as soon as you've got the rules, you've, you feel... Well, I think Paul would have felt a need to obey them and John would have felt a need to disobey them. Yeah, yes. You know, because that's, that's who they were. Um, but, uh, yeah, the more, the more it comes from the heart and the less it comes from the head. Yeah. And finding the right combination of those two is the trick, isn't it? And so when did you... Did you start singing in choirs earlier? Yeah, um... I sang in a local church choir, 
And later on, I had a had a rock group in Liverpool because everybody in Liverpool did in the early. Yes, I read that it was Tony Snow and the Blizzards. Tony Snow and the Blizzards. And, and you were the eponymous Tony Snow. I was Tony Snow because we rehearsed at my house. Um, this method of choosing a leader is not used by the LSO, but it's um, it's as good as any. Um, yeah, and my mum, bless her, would you know would wait outside the cavern in the family console. Um, and uh, people would come out of the cavern and say, Are you Mrs Snow? To my mother. And my mother would say, yes, I am. Uh, Tony will be out in a minute. <laughs> and my mother would say, thank you so much. But how old are you at this stage? You're like 14, 15, 16, 15. I suppose, yeah. And I, at that age, would you say that you don't, you're not really conscious that you're on a stage? It's just, it weighs a lot lighter than it, than it would were you coming to us at, at 20. I feel like at that age... Uh, that that is that's so true that the fearlessness of your yeah. teens. I mean, it's odd because you're terrified in your teens, but also fearless about certain yes. things, aren't you? And yeah, it was the most natural and easy thing to do. Um, and I was, yeah, I mean, I was playing guitar then because it was cool. But I played piano at home, and the uh, my idol then, I suppose, was Winifred Atwell more than anybody else. Yes, almost forgotten now. Yes. She, she she used to play one of these smart pianos, but she also had my other piano, which I've got here. Yes. Yeah, one of my proudest how, things. How did you come to find that? It was, I, I went to an auction to buy a grand piano, and lot 370 was Winifred Atwell's other piano. And you were already a, a fan? Oh, but, no, no, but this, I was 60 by then. Right, OK. Um, yeah, because I also I remember taking a copy of Britannia Rag, so that must have been 1953, to my piano teacher and saying, can I learn this? And he said, no, it's rubbish. And that stayed with me forever. That became a, a lifelong fight. Uh, John Dankworth, me, Previn, quite a lot of people doing this. No, there is no, there is no classical music, pop music, jazz. There is well-made music and badly made music. Yes. And, and it's, that has been such a thing in yes. my lifetime that, the, that what's on kids' iPods now has such a variety, yes. uh, which you wouldn't have had before. You know, it was, it was definitely... It was that awful sort of folk division where when Bob Dylan went electric yes. and half the population abandoned him, you know, because suddenly there was Sunni folk music and Shia folk music and the yes. two will never speak. Yes. Yeah, I was still. And it's a great pity because there's, there's great music in all genres um, and it's there to be found. When you were playing with Tony and the, and the Blizzards, were you, were you writing for them at that stage? Um, yeah, a couple of really bad. Um, Come into my arms, little babe. You see, and stuff like that. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, all right. Um, yeah, you can take my money. Say I'm handsome and I'm smart, but I'm telling you, honey. Can't take my heart. That was yeah. That was when I was fifteen or so. Um, which are all basic yeah. pastiches of the stuff that I was hearing on the radio. Yeah, and that's um, another thing. So then, what were you listening to? Where, where was the music in your house coming from? Was it just a radio on? Was it um, concerts? Or? That yeah, that was fun because I Liverpool Phil um, subscription concerts. Yes. Sitting in the choir seats because that was cheap. Yes. So I heard the entire classical repertoire from just behind the horn section. So you get a very, very odd view 
of what the Beethoven symphonies are. If you just hear the horn part and the percussion, because that's where you're sitting. And miles away, there are the strings. Um, But that was lovely. And um, shows, a lot of shows. um, They came to Liverpool before they went to London on tour, on tryout. So I saw a lot of musicals that were really terrible and never made it to London. And I learned a lot from those, because you learn more from the awful than you do from the great, in a way. Um, And also my big brother was passionate about musicals. And so and my my sister was working in America and sent albums home of shows that we hadn't heard yet, Um, which is is how I heard Tom Lehrer. Because before, yeah, before, most Tom Lehrer songs were banned by the BBC. So, um, yeah, things that, yeah, most of them. Because they were vulgar or because they were politically awkward? Or yeah, the reasons for these are lost in the mists, but right. um, I should think, yeah, because they, yeah, because they were just dangerous. I mean, I've listened to quite a lot over the last few days, and I mean, maybe standards have changed, but I, nothing in it really strikes me as being particularly outrageous. Um, no, on. but they did then. Right. And I remember my, my sister Dawn sending me this 10-inch album of the Tom Lehrer songs, the first one. Yeah. Um, and just being blown away by that, because up until then, there had been, in my life, there had been Gilbert Sullivan, there had been Noel Coward, yes. and all those sort of songs. But nothing with this attack. Right. Which, an attack which I've never been brave enough to do. I mean, I feel... Um, I've always felt guilty about that, the desperate need to be liked. And Tom Lehrer doesn't display any desperate need to be liked no, in his that's, songs. That's very true. But it's a character, I mean, it's clearly just who he is. And I mean, I think it's an academic thing as well. In a kind of yeah, he's a math professor I mean, at Harvard or somewhere. Yes. Um, I think, I mean, I think he's still teaching yes, uh, he, at Berkeley. He's still doing stuff. He's 1993. Um, he does, he, you can do six months course in the history of musical theatre done yes. by Tom Lehrer, which must be fabulous. I bet. Um, and I met him once in 1980. Because because of what I did, Cameron McIntosh said, would you like to do a show with all the Tom Lehrer songs? Wow. And I said, no. I said, these are wonderful, and I don't want to hear them ever sung by anybody except Tom Lehrer. Yeah. And there are certain people like that, mm. that Jake Thackeray's songs are wonderful, but they're to do with the sound that Jake made yes. as well. Um, and, yeah, that I'm, I mind a lot of... Yeah, everybody covers everything, and there are certain things, there are certain voices. Billy Holiday, yeah. you know, we just want to hear Billy Holiday sing it. Yeah. And we did an album ages ago that has never come out, which was Stevie Wonder doing. I mean, it sounds silly, but sort of doing Stevie Wonder covers, right? With with some amazing string arrangements by um, Jeremy Lubbock, you know, amazing stuff. And I, and even doing that, I felt like. I, I wanted to leave the, leave them alone, you know, just thinking they were they're already great. We don't need to do them again. And it's never come out. David Foster produced it. I don't know what happened to it, but um, Andrew's just Andrew Lloyd Webber's just done a symphonic album of kind of symphonic arrangements of a lot of his stuff. Right. And actually, if stuff works, it works because of its simplicity. Yes. A lot. I mean, even actually, a Brahms symphony is actually quite. It's all that needs to be there. There wasn't a point where Brahms thought, I'll go back and add a lot to that, yes. you know, and make it better, because it wouldn't. Uh, yeah, I, I often think that if, it, if it's good, it just, it'll work. Yeah, yeah. And so many film composers I know always say they'll write something, leave it, go back to it, and take as much out as they can. 
to leave as little as possible. Yes. But still get the same message across, you know, because you, you conceive something in a much busier way than perhaps serves the, the film or serves the song. But also the way composers work now, with a computer and with Sibelius yeah. and all of that, you can make it very complicated very quickly. Yes. Yeah. Whereas for me, working with a blank sheet of manuscript paper, it's quite an effort writing the stuff down. So you don't write down anything that you don't <laughs> think should be there. And actually that's a good... Point perhaps to talk about your, the way you write. Do you sit at the piano or do you play a guitar? Or um, so where does it come from? If you're writing songs, no. I mean, you, you you can, but but you'll be limited by what you can play. Whereas you can often sing stuff that you wouldn't play. Right. Um, and certain songs you can tell. I mean, with yesterday, yesterday is obviously written at the guitar because it just falls under the guitarist's fingers so easily. Um, whereas on the piano, it's you really have to work out finding what he meant to do. Yes. Um, um, can you write at the piano? You can write at the piano, but you, but you don't end up with... You, you do better standing in the garden singing. Right. Um, and then coming in and writing down what you've sung. So do you start with the words always? Or it's, you don't hear a tune and then try and stick some words on it? Or I mean, that, give you a tune? that's really... It's the question everybody asks. Yeah. Which comes first? Um... Sammy Khan said, no, it's not about which, which comes first, the music or the words. Sammy Khan said, no, the phone call comes first. Great. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, if you're Richard Rogers, working with Lawrence Hart, there, I believe, he wrote all the music. Yeah. And then Lawrence Hart wrote the words. I can't see how that happened. Because, I mean, if you end up with... Something like, I wish I were in love again. When love congeals, it still reveals the faint aroma of performing seals, the double-crossing of a pair of heels, I wish I were in love again. That, I mean, the double-crossing of a pair of heels is one of the best lines anybody ever wrote, because it means about three things in the same line. But I can't see that being written down second. Um, You know, I got rhythm. Must have been... Nobody would write, I got rhythm, I got music, I got my man. Who could ask for anything more? But you can see. um, You can see that in that producing, I got rhythm. Whereas when Richard Rogers started writing with Hammerstein, they did it the other way around, I believe. Hammerstein wrote all the words, as as Gilbert had with Sullivan, and then gave them to Richard Rogers to set. Yeah. and then, yeah, so if Hammer, you can imagine Hammerstein writing, if I loved you, words wouldn't come in an easy way, round in circles I'd go. If I loved you, time and again I would try to say all I want you to know. I mean, it's, it's one of the few lyrics that you can recite as a yes. poem, that. You then give it to the composer, and who, I mean, at its simplest, who writes, if I loved you. Now, the next thing that really matters is what you put underneath that. Because, I mean, if you're just an ordinary church organist, you would go, if I loved you. And that works, that makes musical sense. Or you could go, if I loved you. And it's still that same tune. But what Rogers did was, if I loved you. And that, the diminished seventh chord, that gives you jeopardy. 
But of course, that gives you the if. If, yeah. It's not a not I love you song. It's an if I loved you, this is what I'd do. Yeah. And that gives that ooh uh, This is a, and it puts a little danger into the song. Um, no way would Richard Rogers have written and then handed it to Hammerstein and said, set some words to that. Yeah. Because the, that harmony comes from the meaning of the song. Yes. I know that, well, certainly Elton John won't, won't start writing until he gets a lyric, apparently. No, and, and Tim Rice says, it's just, just astonishing. Tim Rice writes a complete lyric, sends it to Elton, yeah. you know, by fax it used to be, but... Um, and, uh, you know, ten minutes later, back comes, back comes the right tune for it. And it's got to be the right tune for it. You know, the, and the right words. I mean, that's, that's the uh, indefinable thing, yeah. is how you get the right words and the right tune and the right harmonies going together. I mean, a long time ago, 1985, I suppose. Yeah, we had done Starlight Express in London, Andrew Lloyd Webber and me. And to everybody's and our surprise, that had worked. So the Americans said, right, we'd better do it in America. And even though it had worked, one of the things you all do then is then change the entire show so that it works slightly less well in America, which it did. <laughs> and this, I mean, this was really weird for me because I was, I was kind of playing in a league that was way out of my scope. I mean, I, I knew this when, oh, one day in 1983 when I stood with Andrew Lloyd Webber and Trevor Nunn and John Napier, the designer, in the shell of Battersea Power Station in the rain, having a serious discussion about whether Andrew should buy Battersea Power Station to put Starlight Express on in it. And at that point, I thought, I'm playing with much bigger boys than I'm used to playing with here. But anyway, there I was suddenly um, sitting in the stalls on Broadway in rehearsals for Starlight Express jet-lagged and um, not feeling my best. And Andrew suddenly said, I have I've written this wonderful tune. It's going to be the big ballad in Act Two. And I said, do we need a big ballad in Act Two? Yes, definitely, yeah. We need a big ballad in Act Two. And, and Andrew went to the piano in the stalls and went... <laughs> which is a well-recognised tune that... Yeah. Musical theatre aficionados will know wasn't in Starlight Express. <laughs> and the reason it wasn't in Starlight Express is because, I think, I wrote the worst lyric in the history of lyric <laughs> writing for it. He wanted it to be a big song for the little steam train to sing about how proud he was yes. um, about being a steam train. And I wrote, You are my America You're the eagle in my sky My America, you're the apple, oh yes, in my pie. And as a result, this song never appeared in Starlight Express, quite rightly. <laughs> Move on about a year, and Andrew and I are trying to write Phantom of the Opera, and I'm getting worse and worse, because more and more, it's just getting harder and harder, and I'm feeling more and more disempowered all the time. Why, because you're not happy with what you're turning out? Or just yeah, like... and I, I'm not happy with what I'm turning out, and Andrew isn't, and, and I'm not sure what they want, and what I want to do with the show is different from what they want to do with the show. I wanted it to be more sort of Grongignol and, and Victorian, um, which would have probably, you know, killed it off stone dead. 
But anyway, halfway through writing this, Andrew goes to the piano and says, I've written this wonderful tune, and plays. And, um, and I knew him quite well by now, so I didn't say, hey, that's the... No, I said nothing. And he said, this is going to be the big ballad act too, right? Um, for th the Phantom to sing about love and things. So I thought, all right. Um, and I wrote, love can take you suddenly just as no one seems to care. Time is running out for you in the shadows. Love is there. Which, which I was quite pleased with. I mean, it's better than You Are My America, certainly. Um, but anyway, that didn't work. And that song never got into Phantom, uh, quite rightly. And then, I suppose a year later, I went to the first night of Aspects of Love. Andrew had sent me a copy of the book, Aspects of Love. I mean, literally a copy. He'd got one of his PAs to photocopy the entire book and send it by motorcycle. And I read it as, and because I knew that ten minutes after the motorcycle had arrived, Andrew would ring up and say, what do you think of the book? So I read it as quickly as I could, and I said, I, I really hate this book. Um, it was kind of like Succession, right. um, in that it was just full of really self-interested characters who, if I'd seen them on a stage, I wouldn't want to get involved with, because they were all in it entirely for themselves. There was no empathy for me. Um, so I didn't write Aspects of Love, which turned into a decent show, and I went to the first, went to the first night. Um, but before that, I talked to Don Black, who's a good friend, and said, how's the show going? And Don Black said, Andrew has written this great new tune. <laughs> and I said, is it the big ballad in Act Two? He said, no, no, it's the opening number. And I, I, I thought, oh, right, well, it can't be the same one then. But sure enough, curtain went up, on comes Michael Ball, and goes, love, love changes everything, hands and faces, earth and sky. And, the, and Andrew's great new tune, which is a great new tune, I mean, it is, it's great and it's new, had found the right place to be, the right show to be in, the right place to be in the show, and the right words. And, and, those, and Don's words are, Don and Tim Rice can both do that thing of writing really simple language that isn't banal, which is almost the hardest thing of all to do, to use one- and two-syllable words write something new which doesn't which is relevant and right and truthful and yeah i mean but that that's you know that wonderful song which was the opening number for aspects of love but also came back at the end of act 1 um with andrew's signature thing of the the minor third up right. most people go, do three verses like that and then go up a semitone for the last verse and Andrew goes there and then goes... Which gives real excitement for the more last... Triumphant, more triumphant. Michael Ball has got a B-flat, which not many people have got. Yes. And, and, and that... It's one of the biggest changes musically in my lifetime, that when I was young, before rock and roll, um, the charts were full of show songs. And there used to be a link between songs in shows yeah. and what you heard on the radio. And, um, and then... And then when you would hear, you know, cocktail pianists playing when you went for a drink. Yes. Which, that was all connected, I think, wasn't it? And now, now they've kind of completely separated. That 
that, yeah, my, my grandchildren know all of Hamilton and most of Les Mis, but because, because they've listened to it, because they've chosen to listen to it, yeah. um, that the BBC is not pumping it out all the time on any of the record shows. No, I mean, that's, that's an interesting thought. My, my, my kids, too, know Hamilton inside out. Better than I do, and I've played it. <laughs> that, bit of, that bit of my family was working in America, and certainly they, they did, so they did long road trips, and they had had Hamilton on. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of days, they knew the whole thing, which is odd, because they've never done it. I don't know any other show where they felt, oh, this is, this is for us. And having a, you know, having a nine-year-old grandson tramping around the song, singing, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love, you know, <laughs> which George III sings, yes. uh, it's quite, quite disturbing. It's, a, I mean, it's an astonishing work, that. And odd, because he, Lynn Miranda, is the nicest, easiest, chattiest, friendliest person, um, and a genius. And those two words don't normally go together. <laughs> you know, geniuses normally are fighting to control this tiger talent inside them. Uh, and that produces all sorts of conflict. I, do, I think with Hamilton, it doesn't sound like any other show at the moment. Well, it sounds like In the Heights, which was his previous one. Um, and I went, to see, I went to see that in America because it had won prizes, and I thought I should, because I might learn something, and I did. I mean, that if you have rap in a show, one of the, one of the biggest problems with the show is, or, or a play, is here are all these people on stage, who the hell are they? Yeah. And finding that out as quickly as possible so that they can then tell you a story is really important. Mm-hmm. If you've got three minutes of rap at the beginning, you can, you can do that job incredibly efficiently. Yes. And certainly in In the Heights and in Hamilton, in no time at all, you're right inside it and you know who these people are. The words are so good that it's you kind of lean forward and strain oh, yeah. to listen to them. Yeah. So I'm, did you play in the pit for that? I've, I've done it. We've done about 50 or 60 Hamiltons. It's not string heavy, is it? Oh, no, well, actually, it, it is. There's a string quartet... Which are the only strings? Right. There, there are no keyboard pads, so you're not a string quartet trying to make some samples sound a bit bigger. So that what you talked about there does that happen a lot? That you have synthesizer strings and a couple of live ones to make to give the impression that the synthesizer pad is lots of live players as well. Yes. Right. It's, it's, so you're, you've got this fat sound and, and just the little the, the sheen on the top of it is right. real, and it's enough to kid the ear. Um, I think often, though, the temptation is... Uh, the, sorry, I'm supposed to be interviewing you. No, no, that's interesting. The temptation is that, um, that you can make something symphonic when it, when it perhaps needn't be. You know, a song, a simple song, because you've got this at your disposal, you can make it sound like a huge orchestra. Yeah. I think that the temptation... Is, it's important to resist the temptation to want to make everything sound like a, like a symphony orchestra. If it works on a guitar with a voice then it should work well in what, with whatever forces you really need. Yeah, and the other way round, yeah. if it only works with the big orchestra yeah. and doesn't work as just a voice and a guitar, then it's probably not the, not the song you need. Yeah. I think that's come from TV as well. We do a lot of television where the budgets are just not what they were. And so no. A small string group in a big room with some samples underneath will give the impression of there being a lot more players. Yeah. It comes down to money, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm always knocked out during Strictly Come Dancing, by the variety that those, I don't know, seven, eight players, or yeah. fewer, but the variety of sound and style that yeah. they have to do, just from, you know, 
this... Lance and Tommy, I mean, how many how many different voices do you think you hear yeah. on that show? And Absolutely. It's those two guys. That for, yeah. I, I forget, embarrassingly, the, the name of the female vocalists, but... But I mean, it's just because I know Lance and Tommy better. But they, I mean, it's an incredible band. And Lance's dad was Ray Ellington, right? Yeah. I think. Yeah, that's right. The Ray Ellington Quartet used to be the musical gap in the middle of the Goon Show right. when I was a kid. Um, yeah, no, that they are—they are terrific, and it's. But also, they have to learn a massive amount more than they actually play because of the structure of the show. So there are lots of charts that end up unused yeah. because the show goes like that like a pyramid shape. yes and but you need your charts need to be a square so if that makes any sense perhaps i'll put a diagram on the <laughs> <laughs> so he's dave arch is churning out masses and masses of charts yeah which never get used but it's the, I mean, it's the amazing thing that um nobody's ever found out a way of writing down words in the way that you can write down music I mean, if you write out a piece of music, when a musician plays it, it's pretty much what the composer heard. Yeah. Um, it was just great if, if you could write down to be or not to be so that it was how Shakespeare heard it. Yes. With the inflections and the timing and all of that. Yeah. And it's only, only music can do that. And it's... I, my, I, mean, I, was, I was a choir boy, so I learned to read music. And I went to Cambridge and I was a choral thing at Cambridge. And... Um, and after a bit, yeah, you can, you can read it like you can read the paper. And you get... Early in what we laughingly call a career, I was a Mike Sam's singer right. doing doo-wops behind, um, uh, behind pop records uh, because, because I could read music. And, and as a result, I got odd jobs like... I remember recording the cover album for Thoroughly Modern Millie when that came out because there used to be a thing called Music for Pleasure which sold albums for 99p instead of the £7, £7 that the original cast was. Yeah. And I, I was sent a copy of this. Um, I had to be James Fox singing a song called The Tapioca, yeah. which is in the film. Um, and I had to go along to Marble Arch, uh, where I met the musical director and the Hollywood Soundstage Orchestra and Chorus, who were basically lots of you, lots yeah. of session players, who this afternoon having never met before, were called the Hollywood Soundstage yes. Orchestra and Chorus. And, and I spoke into the microphone. I said, one, two, one, two, into the microphone to prove that it was working. And then the guy brought his baton down and we all sang. I sang the tapioca and the orchestra played it. Oh. And the conductor said, how was that? And the man in the box said, that was all right. And I said, right, shall we, shall we do a take? He said, no, that was it. Right. And we had one session in which we made an album. You know, and an album is what? An hour long, which you make in three hours. Yeah. Um, so you don't rehearse any... Well, if you do rehearse, you record the rehearsal, and if it was all right, you go on to the next number. Yeah. There's nothing apart from musical notation that would enable you to do that. Yes, true. You know, there's... I suppose a really good architectural plan yes. might enable you to build a building without asking the architect what it was they wanted. Even, even I suppose, choreography that is notated somehow... You wouldn't sort of, there is, it's odd because you can't really read it and do it at the same time, so you'd have to learn it a bit. No, it's like I mean, those amazing blind pianists who learn braille scores. Um, yes. yes, it's choreology, I think, is the writing down of it, right? And choreography is the study of it, which is the wrong way round, right. isn't it? Yes, choreography should be writing down dance, and choreology should be studying it. Yeah. But you know, I'm not about to argue with dancers about that, they know what they're doing. 
Yes. And you mentioned Cambridge briefly. Yeah. And I, I hadn't realised until I was reading about it that, that, you had, that you didn't last quite as long as you'd intended at Cambridge. Just what, what, what happened? What happened? Oh, I hated every moment. Well, oh, did you? I, I, went, I went there, I, I did six weeks of engineering because my father said you ought to have something to fall back on if you're going yeah. to be... And, and you can't honestly do three years of studying something that you're only going to fall back on when you love something else. Yes. So after six weeks, I changed, to engin- I changed from engineering to music, which I didn't know enough about. Right. Um, I liked it, and the stuff I liked wasn't the stuff they liked, because I liked Verdi and Wagner and Rossini and things, and they liked Palestrina and Stockhausen. Oh. Um, and, and you spend a lot of your time being given a Palestrina motet or a Haydn string quartet and told to finish that, write the next bit. Right. And, and I always thought, well, all right, but, I mean, I, can do, I could do fake Haydn, but I don't want to do that, so I will write what I would have written at this point. And in any case, what I write isn't going to be as good as Haydn, so what's the point of this exercise? So I got quite arsy about the whole thing. Um, and I think I still would be. Um, that there were... It was full of people who were really interested in music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've struggled to find anybody else who liked it as much as I did. Is that <laughs> because you just wanted to perform it? I think it's not... A, yes. I mean, when, when my brilliant son Joe went to Southampton to do music, he did jazz arranging and leader singing and all kinds of really useful things that he's drawn on in his career yes. since. Whereas the... I think Oxford and Cambridge music, at that time, certainly, trained you to be a music professor rather than, you know, I wanted to be... At the time, I had slight ambitions to be an opera singer and or write shows or whatever. And so my year at Cambridge of being in the footlights was really useful, yeah. apart from anything else, because when I was there in my first and only year... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In their last years were John Cleese and Tim Brooke Taylor and Graham Garden and a lot of brilliant people who... That's, that's such a help, isn't it? If there's, if there's a gang around you... So you're not the only person hoping to do this, but there are other people, then it's, it's much easier. Other people who are really good. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the 22-year-old John Cleese was kind of different from the rest of us yes. um, and came from a different comic place. Yeah. Something you touched on just yeah. about not enjoying Cambridge, but also when you said you would... Say Enjoyed it possibly too much and right. didn't do enough work. Also about aspects of love, getting the book and yeah. just immediately saying, I think it's dreadful or that you didn't like it, a lot of people would have just bitten their lip and just written it anyway, wouldn't they? Do you think that's something that served you well? Well, I think by then I knew what hard work writing a whole musical was. Yeah. And so writing one that you don't really believe in right. is, um, 
Well, A, it's not going to... A, you won't enjoy it, but B, it's not going to work. Because there's got to be a kind of evangelical belief that this is a show worth doing. That sounds unlikely for Starlight Express, but Starlight... But, um, it was an amazing show. I remember going to see that. This is how long ago it was that the tickets were £16. Pounds. Sixteen pounds. You got to sit near the front. And we got to the stalls. Yeah. Yeah. Sixteen pounds. Now you're outside I the theatre. It was a fortune. I remember it feeling. Like, yeah. I think there were me and two friends and dad and sixty-four, sixty-four pounds. Just was asked, and it just felt outrageous. But it was. It was an exciting yes. show. It was outrageous. And when you said you, they were thinking about buying Battersea Power Station. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can see it working in Battersea Power Station, can't you? The way that the track comes around. The... If we'd known it was going to run eighteen years, it would have been worth buying Battersea Power Station. Yeah. But as with, you know, as with Cats, um, Cats was revolutionary, Starlight was revolutionary, so everybody thinks they're going to fail beforehand yeah. because people do think that something brand new that's never been tried before isn't going to work. Yeah. You know, and it's not until it happens. Um, yeah, Cats, everybody thought, particularly because we had the bomb scare on the opening night. And, yeah, Brian Blessed had to tell everybody to leave the theatre. And if you're told to leave a theatre by Brian <laughs> yes. Blessed, by gum, you leave the theatre. Lucky he was around. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. If the sound system had failed, that. the show could still go on. So what actually happened to the first night? Did it just... Did it not? There was a phone call saying... It, it was, what, in 1981? Yeah, and the troubles were still going. Yes. Um, at the time, you know, this is long before 9-11, and ISIS being the fear, yeah. but then the IRA were the fear. Yeah. And... Um, that was the time when everybody was removing all the litter bins in London because yes. the, the IRA would put bombs in them. Yeah. And they've never gone back. But anyway, we got, a, we got a phone call during the opening night saying there's a bomb in the theatre, uh, which there wasn't. But everybody left and there was a search and everybody came back in. Oh, so you reconvened that oh, yeah, night yeah. and finished yeah. the show? Yeah. When things go wrong in the theatre, I think audiences find it so exciting. <laughs> you kn- but shows are so... Efficient and disciplined and organised now, that actually a deliberate mistake reminds the audience that you are seeing something with jeopardy, with where it's live, and it might all go wrong. Yeah, it's the difference between going to a movie and going to the theatre. Really, is that you know that the mistakes in the movie are on the cutting room floor, and you're you're never going to see them. Yes. Um, And yes, the theatre has to have that feeling that things might go wrong. I think. The brilliant, the brilliant sound systems we have now have taken away some of that. Mm. That you have to sometimes you think, who is that singing? Yeah. Because the sound is coming from basically the two sides, and it, okay. the more acoustic you can make the show, the better. When you would have opened something like Phantom, what, what, were the were the singers mics? They would have been then, would they? Oh yeah, they, they were. Yeah, right. But not all. I think now, now you would everybody on stage. Yeah. Um, so when would that have started? Because there must have been a point before which... I think the first one, the first one was Barbara Streisand had the first radio mic in London. Um, And that was very new. That was in Funny Girl when it came over here. And on the first night, which was the first time they'd sort of tried out the radio mics, you got quite a lot of, is anybody going to pick up this fair in Ealing? (laughs) Because the... um, because they were on the same frequency as one of the taxi firms, yes, and that had to be sorted out quite quickly. Yes. And I should imagine that uh, that didn't go down too well with with Babs. Uh, it, it is not recorded, or not for <laughs> yes, not for public consumption. What she thought of that? Uh, um, 
Let's move quickly, if we could, just to do a bit of charity stuff, because it's a massive part of your life. And where do you think that comes from, your immense generosity? I mean, oh, is basically generosity, I don't... I think it's immense selfishness, not immense generosity. It, it, it cheers me up, makes me feel better. I mean, where does it come from? Um, more than anything else, it came from Michael Burke and Ethiopia on a report in 1984, yes. a stunning piece of news footage about Ethiopia, yeah. when you couldn't watch that and not think, must be a way of doing something. Yeah. And so you send off some money and you think, well, I haven't done everything, but I've done something and I feel better about it than I did before I sent that money off. And I suppose that feeling that, also feeling, I mean, inevitably, I, I spent the first... 30 years of my career, writing songs about what had happened today and then touring around singing them or writing songs about IBM and their management and going and singing them at an IBM conference. Yes. And that was really difficult and hard work and, and I'd trained for it and I got paid quite well for it, but I understood that, right? I had to drive to Newcastle to the conference, sing the song, drive home again. Tough stuff and you get well paid for it. Writing with Andrew Lloyd Webber was the first time ever I'd written any songs that were going to be sung by somebody else while I wasn't there. Yeah. And, yeah, there was, a, there was a guilt, really, when Cats opened on Broadway, and I'd never been to America, but suddenly they started sending me 150 quid a week for my bit of Cats, right, right which was much more than I got paid for the London bit. And I thought, well, this, is, this, is, this is not fair, really, I'm not there singing the song. Yeah. Um, and so what do we do? So I feel guilty about getting sent this money when I haven't done any work. So we'll give some of it away, and then I won't feel guilty about it. And that's really why our little charity that Annabelle and I run, it's called the Alchemy Foundation. Yeah. It's turning bad money into good money. And, um, and it's been a joy, and it's been really interesting, because it gets you into bits of the world you wouldn't have known about otherwise. Ah, it's terribly easy to be an ivory tower composer. And actually getting, in, getting involved with the bits of the world that need stuff, you find out things, and those actually feed back into your work. Because after... You notice it with, oh, stand-up comedians begin doing a great act about homelessness and problems and things because they've got no money. Yeah. And... 20 years later, they're doing another great act about being a middle-class dad with two kids um, and because their lives have changed so much because they've done well and they're playing arenas. Um, and, they, yeah, so you lose some of that connection with the rest of the world. But if you're doing shows rather than stand-up, I mean, you're still being asked to, say, to write songs about whatever's in the show. I mean, you're, although your life has changed dramatically. Yeah, but I don't have to be there to sing it. And, and do you like the fact that someone else sings? Is letting go of it a, 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 a lovely part of the process? Depends who they are. <laughs> I mean, yes, there are great Richard Rogers quotes of, um, oh, I think it was Rosemary Clooney singing Falling in Love with Love, yeah. which is a waltz, and she sang it um, swung. And Richard Rogers said, why did she do that with one of my songs when she could have fucked up Silent Night? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
It's not a word you expect to hear from Richard Rogers no, from all saccharin and sweetness no. and. I just it comes up time and time again with composers. Just like you said, you write down some squiggles on a page and some lyrics, and and then you hand hand them over. And what happens to them is you're sort of powerless, really. And that's yeah. But also, is what I'm writing anything to do with the audience's experience? Mm. So it's quite important for your own experience to stay in tune with that audience's experience. Yes. Do you find you know you'll you'll have a story thinking about you know. So this is going to be the big battle in Act Two. Is that process? It feels like it's not necessarily always related to the story that you're trying to tell. Just the sense of stagecraft that we need a thing to do something here in a show that's that's going to do this for the audience. Is with any with any show, first of all, you you get the book right. You get the shape yeah. of the story right. And in that, there will be moments, if it's going to work as a musical, where there is so much emotion going on in a character's heart that they have to burst into song. Yeah. If they just start singing, that doesn't, it doesn't work. They have to burst into song because yeah. just words won't do it anymore. Um, all, yeah, all musicals have to go from A to Z emotionally, not from A to B. Yeah. You, can't, you can't sing, would you like a cup of coffee? You, know, well, you can, but only if it's in a contrast to the, to the other stuff. And, yeah, when... When I first got an album of a show, which is, I suppose, Oklahoma, there's a bit on the back. This is in the days when you've got a 12-inch, so you've got quite a lot of space to write on the back. Um, The curtain rises, curly, a cowboy enters, brackets, oh, what a beautiful morning, close brackets. And that paragraph is all you need to write a hit show. If you've written the complete story and in brackets the names of all the songs... Mm -hmm. Then after that, it's drudgery. It's filling in all those blanks. Um, because there's, there's no way that in Carousel, Curly, not Curly, um, Billy Bigelow, he's, he's pretty inarticulate show uh, guy with quite a small vocabulary. And it's part of Hammerstein's genius is that the vocabulary of the, of the performer is the vocabulary of the song. It doesn't suddenly move into flowery language if they're not that sort of person. Um, Billy Bigelow is proud, macho, and would never say to a girl, I love you. Yeah. Because that would be weakness as far as he's concerned, which is why he has to say, if I loved you, maybe I might do this. And it, even then, he wouldn't say that. He'd sing it. Um, and that, but that emotional, we need a song here yeah. thing makes the audience think, oh, I see why they're singing now. Right. Because it's necessary. So you're getting that urge to, to put the big ballad in the second half because, it's, because the story... Yeah, but if you shoehorn it in, it isn't going to work. Right. You know, you've got to have reached a point where you need a big ballad in the second half. And how, I mean, does it often happen where you're asked to write a big ballad for the second half and you say, but I don't think it needs one, or... I would usually say, can we do something else? Because the thing I'm really worst at is writing the big ballad in the second half. I mean, you've, you've heard that. Um, it's, yeah, as I've, got, as I've got older, actually, I've got less embarrassed, I think, about trying to write love songs. Um, partly working, you know, working with my students at Orpheus, who have passionate relationships with each other in their you know, 1920s. Yes. Um, Describe, I think, just so that people understand what, what Orpheus does, because it's all right. a very unusual and extraordinary thing. Yeah, it is. Um, ages and ages ago, when I was on television, you get asked to do things, and you find yourself 
as um, patron of the local riding for the disabled because you didn't know how to say no. So you're, there you are, leading a horse around, thinking, I really shouldn't be doing this. I know nothing about horses. I'm quite frightened of horses. And riding for the disabled is not really anything I can contribute to. And the more, the more that happens, you more think, well, what, what do I know anything about? And nobody was doing music with disabled people. Everybody was assuming that couldn't be done. Round about then, keyboards were being developed where you could record a tune very slowly and then play it back quite quick. Right. So if your fingers didn't work very well, the machine was providing for you what a wheelchair provided if you couldn't walk. Yes. And, and I got together with a guy in Belfast who was already working on this, and we started doing these music weeks with disabled people, about 20 young disabled people, 20 music students, and a couple of animateurs, people whose job it was to say, yes, you can. Mm. Um, particularly a guy called Richard McNichol, who was first flute in the LPO, I think. Right. Um, and then went with Simon Rattle to Berlin to be their education person. Amazing musician, but an amazing educator. And we would do these weeks where we would write lots of songs, write, write lots of music, make lots of stories, and put them on at the end of the week and astonish ourselves and astonish the audience and astonish... Everybody said, we didn't know we could do that. And the audience said, I didn't know they could do that. And those were thrilling things to be part of. Because for so many, so many music students, particularly, would say at the end of the week, I remember now why I wanted to do music. Yeah. Because I'd forgotten, actually, because it's become quite dull. What Doing what I do now as a professional musician, or studying so hard, some of the ginger has gone out of it. But here, we have actually used music to do what I thought music could do when I was nine or ten. Yes. Um, but... At the end of these weeks, there was a huge downer because it was over and we had to wait another year to do another one or whatever. So I got together some people and we started a thing called the Orpheus Centre because Orpheus was, if, if he existed at all, which he almost certainly didn't, he was the great musician who, when he played, the mountains bent down to hear the barbarians stop fighting and, yeah, he, he had the magic, the power. And we started a college where we could do these music weeks over and over again and give young disabled people the chance to think, hey, I'm up on a stage, people are clapping, I'm doing all right. I'm... And their self-confidence changes. We teach them all the things the average 19-year-old never learns, like cooking and laundry and budgeting and cleaning and stuff. So when they leave us after three years, they go and live independently and they have the confidence to live independently because of all the performing arts stuff that they've done. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't train them to be on the X Factor or to go into show business, God forbid. But, every, you know, every young person should be in the school musical, be, do something where they're applauded yes. rather than just being a nuisance to everybody. Uh, did, you, did you feel that because performing has given you great pleasure? You seem like someone who really is very comfortable in front of an audience. Maybe that's um, just a brilliant... Act, no, it's I, a pathetic need for approval. <laughs> it is. I mean, for, and it's, I think, quite dishonest of most right. performers if they don't admit that actually, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you never, yes. you never sit in an empty room and give a recital. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have once or twice when the publicity hasn't been done very well. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, we, we all need that affirmation. 
uh, as performers. And it's, it's nice to do it as an amateur where you don't need it quite as much and you can do it for fun. Yeah. And, and, and it, it really does transform their ability. I was going to call them kids, but they're young adults, aren't they? Yeah. They, 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 it makes nipping out for a loaf of bread or you know, a task that might have been a struggle for some of them yeah. before. They, Absolutely. much, much easier because yes, it they does. have the confidence yeah. that they've learned. Yeah, and, and more specifically, it makes you really good when you are having to interview the housing officer or the social worker yes. or any of that. It's another little performance and you're absolutely ready for that. And you keep in touch with them when, when they've left. Oh, yeah, yeah. And at the moment, I mean, last year, 89% of our students left and lived in their own flats. And most colleges like us, it's about 40%. Right. You know, so it really works. Amazing. And we say, you know, as a result, we save the government a lot of money because yes. somebody living independently rather than living in full-time care is much cheaper in terms of benefits. Yeah. Not why we do it, but it's a nice fiscal accident. Well, but also it's a, it's a social... Benefits, it makes everybody around them feel better as well. This, this person is having a good life and we enjoy that. Perhaps now, actually, having talked about education might be a good time to crowbar our way to Tom Lehrer at, at last, who is, as you mentioned, still teaching maths and Math. musical theatre. Math. Math. Not yeah. maths. I don't know why. It's, if, ever, if ever there was a subject that was plural, it's, so it's plural. maths. It's, uh, and he must be 90. He's 93, yeah. 93. Yeah. Heavens Amazing. above. Yeah. It's even older than Lionel Blair. Oh, I know. How sad. Well, that was sad, yes. Really sad. Because he was pure show business. Yes. You know, he was... Um, him and Christopher Biggins, really, of just, yeah. um, just spreading joy. We should say that Christopher Biggins is, is still very much alive. Christopher Biggins, at the time of recording, is more alive than almost anybody on the planet. <laughs> yes. yes, that'd be crazy. Um, yes, driving around, often driving around town in a tiny car. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's a picture. Um, oh, right, Mitch Ben does that as well. See? Yes, Mitch Ben is huge and, drives and has, a, has a tiny little car and plays a tiny little guitar as well. Yeah, Tom Lehrer, um, always, as well as as well as writing those songs and singing those songs, was always an educator. And How did you discover him? Was he just someone that... Oh, my sister sent me this album right. from America yeah. um, and at a point when none of us in England had ever heard of him, I think. Right. And, yeah, it blew me away. But the... No, music education, I mean, I've... I had a long time with National Foundation for Youth Music and all of that... I mean, all edu- if you only do the three R's at school, which is fine if you're good at the three R's, yeah. but for some people, they're good at sport, and some people, they're good at theatre, and some people, they're good at music, and some people are good at being the school librarian or whatever. The more wide education is, the more every child has got a chance of getting something from it and feeling, yeah, it's worth turning up today. And me And obviously for me... You know, that, the music side of that really matters. When I was learning music at school, all we learnt was classical music and terrible arrangements of folk songs for the school choir to sing. Right. And then a whole generation of music teachers grew up with the Beatles. And now Lennon and McCartney are a big part of every school's yeah. learning. Um, and generally, music education now is terrific in its breadth yeah. of subject and disgraceful in its breadth of access. 
that, you know, if you're at a school where the head teacher thinks music's a good idea, terrific. But if you're at the school down the road where the head teacher thinks, no, it's all about the league tables and sport or whatever, um, that really shouldn't be an accident. Well, worse, I'm afraid, you can be at a school where the head teacher thinks that music is a great idea but they can't afford to provide any. And there's, yeah, there's, sure. There's a lot of that. And it's one of the first bits of any budget to go, yes. whether it's a local council or whether it's the school. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's such a pity. But what we did at the National Foundation for Youth Music, we had lots of lottery money to do music outside schools. Yeah. And a lot of the best music happens Saturday mornings in music clubs and music centres. Yeah. And, and in surprising places. I mean, we were, yeah, we were supporting the teaching of rock and roll, the teaching of hip-hop, teaching of rhythm and blues, yeah. teaching of gamelan, all sorts of stuff. And it is wonderful to see a unhappy, damaged young person yeah. suddenly grab hold of something that is theirs and, and where after a bit they can get better than the teacher. Every good, every good teacher, you know, the nice thing about it is the amount you learn from children. Yes. Um, and if you're a teacher who doesn't learn anything from children, you're in the wrong job. Yeah, I mean, if you, in your case, I mean, you Whatever else happens, whatever, whatever happens in life, you think, I can play the violin really well. I have learnt, I've dedicated myself to playing the violin really well. I can do this. Stop talking to me like that. Yes. I have a skill. <laughs> the, um, the ego is quite important. Well, One of the, it's a balance, isn't it? You, you have, have to have know to what you're bad at yeah. and be honest about yes. that. You also have to know what you're good at and be honest about that. Yeah. You, you need to be able to say, yeah, I can't do that. But I, and then to another question, yeah, I can do that. Uh, and when somebody says, you've done it wrong, he said, no, I haven't. No, that's how it should be done. And do you remember a time when you, when you realised and you thought, actually, I'm really, really, really good at this? I don't think you ever say, I must be really good at this, but you get to a I'm coping stage. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, yeah, I was, I was lucky. I wrote a review for the Belfast Festival in 1967 and went with some friends and we did that, and that was all right. And the festival director said, look, we do these lectures sponsored by Guinness in the mornings. Would you do one about songwriting? And I was, what, 20, 24? Yeah, I was 24. Um, so, again, it didn't occur to me that this was a very arrogant thing to do. <laughs> and, and I did that, and that was the beginning of the sort of one-man show that I then toured around of um, how to write songs and then getting ideas from the audience and, saying, and going away in the interval and writing a song from those ideas. And, and once you've done that a couple of times, you think, oh, this is, yeah, uh, this is something I can do. Because yeah. um, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't even have to be a very good song. But the audience knows that this is a song I didn't sing last night and I'm not going to sing tomorrow night. Yeah. It's a song written entirely for them, which, again, is the you know, major difference between a live performance. Yeah. Oh, something happened this evening and we, the audience, were all there and it's different from what happened yesterday and different from what happens tomorrow. Don't you think writing comic songs, I mean, it's a very specific art in the sense... Well, I mean, like, do, you feel a, do you feel a kind of lineage, as we mentioned, from Noel Coward to, I don't know, Tom Lehrer, even Peter Sellers, maybe, Bernard Cribbins? Um, do, do you Peter feel Sellers, like Bernard Cribbins performed the, comic songs. Performed other people's. Right? I think... Um, I don't know who wrote Hole in the Road. Um, but is there? A, I've never thought of it as anything as grand as a lineage. It's just, right. it's a gang I'm very happy to be on the edge of. Yeah. Starting with Gilbert and Sullivan, certainly, because they 
they were always on tour in Liverpool when I was a kid, and we always went to see those. My mum and dad loved that. Yeah, inevitably, if you go and see somebody at that something at that age, you shuffle around in your seat during the love songs, and you enjoy the funny songs. Yeah, um, and I think that that stays with you for some time. Yes, I, I I read something very funny actually that I meant to say before about Tom Lehrer that when Henry Kissinger having been a political... Do you know if yes. you know this? Was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in He said there was no point in doing satire anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it trumped itself. But I then found out that in 1976, Henry Kissinger was the first honorary member of the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> the, the very first person. And I thought... Well, if political satire wasn't dead in 1973, it <laughs> oh. certainly was in 1976. Oh, and he- gosh. And actually, Henry Kissinger is almost the same age as Tom Lehrer and, and still going. Still, you know, on policy. But not significantly writing comedy songs. Not writing uh, comedy songs. No. Or teaching that. Or indeed, well, playing right. a lot of basketball, I suspect. No, no, I don't no. think that was ever a big... Meadowlark so. passes to Kissinger. You can't, you can't imagine that. Yeah. Uh, now, you, you have... Five, five kids, am I right? I've got five kids, yeah. And they all do different things. What's, what, what advice do you give to them when you're... Well, I'm thinking particularly of Joe, really. Well, God, I mean, the whole concept of giving your children advice is pretty alien, frankly, because it's not going to be taken. Yeah. You never ask for it. Yes, once or twice, which is a glorious moment. Yeah. Yeah, one of them, yeah, had just gone to university... You arrive at university, there's the Freshers' Ball, you have to find somebody to go with at the Freshers' Ball. So he met someone and took her to the Freshers' Ball and then rang up and said, Dad, I've got a problem. And I said, what? He said, well, I've taken this girl to the Freshers' Ball and it's not her. She's not the one, but her best friend is. What do I do about this? And I said, well, for a start, you imagine that maybe the girl you took to the freshest ball is thinking the same about you. Maybe you are not the light of her life either. And you tell her kindly and quickly that this isn't going to work. And she will be all right with that. And so he did. And he's been married to the best friend now for years and years and years. And they are, yeah, they're a match made in heaven. I mean, and that was a kind of across a crowded room. You are the one. Um, How wonderful. It is wonderful when it, when it happens like that. And again, so accidental, you know, because that was, that was his third choice university and he didn't get into the first two. But if he had got into the first two, he would have never met her. But that was, yeah, that was a piece of genuine advice. Anyway, that worked out all right. Um, Joe, yeah, I mean, I did, Joe said, do you think I ought to go into the business? Right. He's the youngest, the fifth one, and the first one to try and get a proper job. I mean, all the others are doctors and lawyers and yeah. things. But, um, but Joe is, uh, uh, writes songs, plays the piano and sings them. Very brilliantly. Uh, well, he say. does. I mean, he does. I mean, I, good. I had a lovely time in show business, but, and I'm a, I'm a terrible piano player because nobody made me practice because right. my mum and dad didn't know that you must. Uh, Annabelle and I knew enough about music to know that Joe was potentially going to be really good, but only if he really worked at it. And we made him work at it, much against his will. The Twix bar was pretty vital in this, that, yeah. you know, half an hour of practice and you're allowed a Twix bar. And without that, he'd have no career. Yeah. But also, he was, I mean, he was lucky in having Annabelle as his mum, because Annabelle was a really fine singer. Yes. And Joe, Joe does what she does and what I could never do, of suddenly 
instinctively finding the heart of a song and conveying the heart of that song to the public. I could work stuff out, but not. But I didn't sort of know what this song was about. Yeah. And Annabelle does, and Joe does. Do you find it easier to analyse if he asks you for help with the song? Are you, are you able to be a bit more dispassionate than something you've written? And is it, does it make it easier for you to help him? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, mostly, go back to what you wrote first. Because quite often, uh, your first idea, which you then feel you must develop, quite often that is the right idea. And quite often, when you have a really good idea for a song, you then write verse one, where it's actually what you've written is the last verse. And just finding that out quite early on is is useful. Write, Write what comes before this, not what comes after it. We went, the Bach Choir had their first concert for 18 months at the Festival Hall a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And Katie Hill was singing because they were doing the foray Requiem, but mainly they were doing a piece by Richard Blackford. Good composer. Yes, I've done uh, telly stuff for Richard. Yeah. A long time ago, yeah. And one of the choir, a lot of the choir, had had really bad COVID because they went to America right at the beginning yeah. and sang with the Yale Glee Club or something, and they all... My son Rufus, who's my oldest, who's in the Bach Choir... He had long COVID and suffered. But a guy called Peter Johnston, who's a professor at Cambridge and also in the choir, was in intensive care at Addenbrooke's for about three months and nearly died with it. And when he came out, the nurses in intensive care had all been keeping a diary about his progress because he was sedated. Yeah. And he, they gave him all these diaries. And he had also had weird dreams while he was sedated. So he made a piece out of the nurse's diaries about how he's getting on and the dreams that he was having and handed it to Richard Blackford to set as a journey through COVID from apparent disaster to exit and success. And the Bach Choir, because they, because they were singing about one of their members, one of their friends, sang this with such un-English passion and intensity. It was Amazing. simply wonderful. And we had quite a lot of the intensive care team in the audience and of course as soon as they stood up and took a bow the audience goes wild because the NHS is a kind of trigger at the moment for our survival and it's quite rare to go to a I've been to a lot of dead concerts where nothing much happens and all the music gets played and there's applause at the end and everybody goes home and says well well we got through that then but but this was intense and wonderful and personal and, and glorious, and, a, and one of those things that if they hadn't set it to music, yeah. nothing would have happened. Yes. But somehow setting it to music releases so much emotion in the audience and the choir and all the um, Philharmonia who were playing. And was he there? Oh, yes, he was singing in was the singing. choir. Right. Um, and, yeah, it must have been quite something for him. Thank you so much. Not a bit. I hope you get something out of that. I've got loads out of it. I've got so much. I shall shall be editing. I even even wrote the lyrics out to So Long Run. Oh, bless. (laughs) Particularly from that. I mean, obviously, one of of the things I love most is rhyme. Um, There's a line about There's a line line in there. It'll be the same line, but... The Americans have two great newsreaders called Chet Hunkley, Dave Brinkley and Chet Hunkley, yes. or the other way around. Huntley and Brinkley, Chet yeah. and Dave, do this news programme. And while we're attacking frontally, watch Brinkley and Huntley describing contrapuntally the cities we have lost. I mean, it, that's the kind of thing where Cole Porter or Sondheim or W.S. Gilbert would say, yeah, oh, I wish I'd done that. <laughs>
Oh, and with a ridiculously cheerful tune. Thank you for listening. That was the glorious Richard Stilko. In the show notes, there's a playlist which contains lots of things that Richard has been involved with, his collaboration with the late, great Peter Skellen that we didn't have a chance to talk about, and some of the things that we've referenced today, some Rogers and Hart and a couple of songs by Tom Lehrer. If you enjoyed that, please subscribe and do listen again. Take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.